batteries in it. He knows me. Uh, last week I very carefully put the microphone on before it came up here um, and then promptly forgot to turn it on. Um, the Lord knows why. Uh, all right, our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 123. A song of ascents. To thee I lift up my eyes. O thou who art enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to thee, Lord our God, until he shall be gracious to us. Let us pray. Father, truly we, we have gathered together to look to you. And I do pray that we would be as the servants, as the, the maids, totally expectant that you will do great things, that you will fill our minds and hearts with, with righteousness and, and peace, that you will teach us in the right way, that you will draw us to yourself and speak tenderly to us and help us in our afflictions, help us in our struggles but most of all, that you will help us honor you and glorify you in all we do. We ask that you would do these things as we pray, as we, we sing, as we read the word, as we hear it preached. Father, that you truly would be honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand as we turn in our hymnals now to him 302. 302. 302. Lord of the world above, how blessed and how fair the dwellings of that love my earthly temples are to Sun and shield, our light and our deep. 
again to Fellowship Bible Church. We would like to turn to Revelation chapter 15 this morning, where I will be reading for our public reading of the scriptures this morning. We'll be reading the whole chapter this morning. If you would like to follow along, Revelation chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After all these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests were golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's continue to magnify Almighty God. Souls by sin of 
this. Next, uh, Psalm 61, using the melody, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Among
So this time in our service we gather together as a body to lift our voices in prayer. I would ask some of the men to read us aloud, and after time I will close and just reiterate the reminder to please stand while you pray so the congregation may hear. Let's pray. Most High, we do bow ourselves before you and we come before you with hearts torn and straight from walking in the midst of a wicked world. Father, we ask that you would bind us up more closely with thee. And Father, we know that if we trusted you fully, if we truly place our hearts within your hands, follow after the will of God, much less will we be scraped and torn, Father. We will be resting in the arms of Jesus. Well, Father, I ask that you would bear us up, that it would be your strength 
that moves us forward, not any labors of our own, for our, our efforts are feeble, failing, unable to enact anything, Father, but we rest in you for all things. We ask that the joy of the Lord might be our strength. Father, we do lift up your church here in this building, in this city, in this land, Father, even across the world, from the rising to the setting of the sun, even in the watches of the night, that the children of God would rise to call upon your name, to cry out your praises, to bless Almighty God. But Father, we ask that as your servant rises to deliver the word today, that you would bless the labors of his hands, the study that he has prepared in his mind, that your spirit would be upon him, that the word of the Lord would be delivered faithfully to the people, that it would come forth with power, with dignity, strength, Father, that we would hear with understanding, that it would be at work in our lives, that as we go forward from this place for the week to come, that we would do so secure in the knowledge that your ways are sure, your purposes are set, that you will not be thwarted, that you are an all-consuming fire whom we serve. Father, I ask that we would be enthralled with you, that we would be delighted in you, that you would be all our hope and delight. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. <laughs> I invite you to stand again as we turn in our hymnals to hymn number 267. Hymn 267. 267. Jim's up. 
Once again in Hosea chapter 6, and our focus this morning will be on 11b, the second half of verse 11 in chapter 6 through 7-2, but in order to set the context, I would like to read beginning at verse 6 of chapter 6. Hosea 6, verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have trans transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. Let us pray. O word of God incarnate, O wisdom from on high, please that you would speak and come down. Instruct and teach your people. Build us up in the most holy faith. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. 
And we ask that we would give all praise and glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When it comes to mathematics, most people have difficulty thinking in the abstract. They can conceive of 12 divided by 3 equals 4, or 8 times 7 is 56. But when it comes to formulas, those things that you probably will cringe when I tell you, PV equals NRT. What is that? Or area of a triangle is one-half base times altitude. People have difficulty conceptualizing that, or lest I say E equals MC squared. Who knows what that is? But I think when it comes to sin, most people prefer to think in the abstract. They prefer to think, well, yeah, that was a little sin, or yeah, that is something that I need to be aware of, or that God is displeased with, but they don't like to think concretely. They don't like to be told of their own particular sin, or they don't want to be bothered with self-inspection. But here, Hosea, by the Holy Spirit, causes the people of Israel and causes us to examine not the abstract idea of sin, but particular sins. In your outline, I quoted from one of the commentators. He says, this is Hosea's well-stocked vocabulary of sin. J.L. Mays says that this particular section of Hosea 6, 7 through 10 is a miniature guidebook to the geography of sin in Israel. All of the people, verse 10, Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, Judah, the entire nation is involved in the geography of sin. And he spells out their sins. We talked in general last week about the fickleness of the people of Israel in verse 4. He says, your loyalty is like the morning cloud, like the dew that, that goes away. It disappears. It, there's no lastingness to it. You're inconstant. You, you have changed your affections. And we see through this litany of their sins, this vocabulary of sin, that they have moved from what we would truly understand as fickleness to infidelity. Look at the sins briefly again in verse 7. They have transgressed the covenant. What is that? In the language of Hosea, they have violated their marriage vows. They, they have transgressed that covenant that they made with God. I am your God and you shall be my people. And they have violated that. They've cast their marriage vows aside. They have dealt treacherously with me. They, they, they have forsaken God and chosen other lovers. They have gone from forsaking their vows to now giving vows or at least giving themselves to others. In, in verse 8, 
They are wrongdoers. In the Hebrew, it it's, it's has the idea of not only adultery, but political foolishness. It, it's, it's giving themselves and, and, and really prostituting themselves to, to others. Murder. And this we saw was the practice of even the priests at that time. No respect for the law of God. No respect for his people. And then he says, surely, in verse 9, they have committed crime. Some of your versions say lewdness. It's kind of an all-encompassing word that means altogether indecent, unchaste, or villainous. And then he spells it out, and again in the theme of Hosea, Ephraim's harlotry. Failure to trust God for his protection. Failure to recognize that he is their husband. And not only that, to disrespect the societal laws that were meant to protect them from other things, to guard them socially. This is the litany. This is the vocabulary of sin. The divine complaint of their fickleness is now shown by the people to be divine complaint against their infidelity. And in this section, beginning with 11b, I think we see that that divine complaint goes from fickleness to their infidelity and now to their out-and-out deceit. They have tried to deceive God, but he sees and he remembers their sin. They have tried to deceive God, and in actuality... The only ones they have deceived are themselves. And they've succeeded in that. In verse 11b, again, I would break the chapter at 11a and begin chapter 7 with b. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. Uh, The two words are parallel, restoring the fortunes and healing the people. They're parallel thoughts, and that's why I think they really belong together rather than separated by the chapter division. The land was depleted. The, the, The state was in disarray, the political state. Isaiah's, or Hosea's dates are probably somewhere from 755 B.C. to 715, roughly in, in that area, that 40-year period they believe that, that Hosea was writing these things. About 100 years before that, perhaps 840 to 814 uh, B.C., we, we read of the time uh, that, that may be what Hosea is referring to, when I restore the fortunes. Of Israel, when I would heal them. Perhaps in Second Kings 9, where Jehu comes, and he is the one who is, he, he's a reformer. He, he, he's a restorer of Israel in a sense. He destroyed Jezebel and the priests of Baal. And God used him in that role. Perhaps, like I said, a hundred years before this. But, but we know what's to come. We know that Assyria, the king Tiglath-Pileser, will come and he will come against Israel and afflict them. The Philistines will invade their cities and and, and take over and settle there. 
There, there will be a time when the Israelites themselves, and I, again, it was one of those things, it's like I hadn't really noticed this before, but there is, is a period of time where they actually make 200,000 of their own countrymen their slaves in order to survive. And in 2 Kings 17, Shalmaneser, the king now of Assyria, comes up against them and besieges it for three years. Three years of besieging, surrounding them and oppressing them. And then finally in 722 B.C., they're hauled off, the Israelites are, to Assyria, into exile. Their case was bad. Their, the, the state, the nation, the people are in disarray. But it was not hopeless. God had designed to do well when I restore the fortunes of my people. I will purge them. I will restore them. I will separate them again unto me. He would restore the land. He would renew it to its robust state materially, socially, spiritually. And then we see the parallel in 7.1a. When I would heal Israel, to me, the, the first is to the land, now to the people themselves, when I would heal them. And, and again, he's, he's speaking of them as a nation as a whole, but we know in, in chapter 6, uh, up in 1 through 3, he has said Ephraim is oppressed and he's crushed in judgment. That, that's his sickness. And, and we know that he talks about Judah being a rotten house. That, that's his, his, his woundedness. He speaks of it as, as a wound that needs to be healed. And a cure is intended. As we reviewed last time, he's wounded us, but he will heal us. He will revive us after two days, and he will restore us to live before him. God intends to do these things because that's what he does. That is what he is like. He is the great physician and healer. In chapter 1 of Hosea, we read, And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel, I will gather them together. That's restoring the people to their, their nationality. In chapter 2, he says, he, he speaks the beautiful language. I, I will allure her, and I will speak tenderly to her, and I will make a covenant with her. That is a God who has great and gracious intentions. He, he is making these advances to his bride. And later in chapter 2 he says, I will betroth you to myself in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and compassion and faithfulness. That's God's intention. He says, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, The iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered, and the evil deeds of Samaria. He's like that restoration company that buy, purchases the house or begins, you know, is bid on the restoration, and they go in and they say, okay, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take the carpets up and you peel those carpets and you roll them back and you put them in the trash heap and then what do you discover? The floorboards are rotten. 
The joists underneath are sagging. The plumbing has been leaking for years, and there's rottenness in the wood, and there's mold in the walls. When I would heal Israel, then I uncovered the wickedness of Israel and the evil of Samaria. I began my examination, I, I, be, I began my restoration, and I began to peel back. I began to be like that surgeon when I began to open you up and so that I might heal you. I discovered more cancer. I discovered more than I bargained for here. I find more inspection, infection in you. We have been reading and hearing uh, even me personally, about men that served in Vietnam. And they go to the doctor for some ailment or some treatment, and in that treatment they discover that there is cancer growing that they have been holding in for 40 years from the Agent Orange used during that war. When I would heal, then I uncovered these things. Your, your wickedness, somewhat restrained, ha has now broken out. You've become more impetuous, more outrageous, more bold in your pride, more self-secure. And specifically, how does he term this sin? He says, for they deal falsely. They deal falsely with God. They, they've lied to him. <laughs> They've tried to deceive him. We're doing services. We're following tradition. We are offering sacrifices. We are doing all of these things which you, you have commanded. And God says, no, you have tried to flatter me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You deceived me into thinking that your actions showed your sincerity, but when I opened you up, when I examined you to restore you, I found this wickedness, this deceit. Deceit is imposing a false idea to cause bewilderment or cause helplessness, to, to further the cause of those who deceive. They had practiced religion, but they had not practiced mercy. They had praised him with their lips, but there was no love in their hearts for him. Jesus came to heal, did he not? Jesus discovered this when he announced to the people, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And those who thought themselves well did not come to him, but those who realized their illness, their sickness, and their need came to him. Jesus, when he's leaving Jerusalem, and I think it's his last time, uh, at least recorded for us in Luke, the, the disciples want him to turn around and look at the city and the, the temple and all the, how beautiful it is. And Jesus is weeping. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You, you stoned the prophets and you killed those who would bring the message to you. Sounds like Hosea. I have union you with the prophets, but you, 
you're fickle. He says, I, you have had the prophets, and, and you have had the messengers, and there are many times when I would have gathered you as a hen gathered her chicks, but you would not. I would have uncovered your illness, but you would not have it. Jeremiah Burroughs points out that in the scriptures we read either none or very little of demon possession until Jesus came. When he would heal his people, when he would restore their fortunes and heal their sicknesses and become the great healer, the demons recognize that this man means business. And some of the people did and some did not. Some lied to God. I'm not that bad. These things do not describe me. See, I am doing the traditions. I'm tithing. I'm sacrificing. I'm... And God says in 7-2 through Hosea, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. They're not considering in their hearts that I see these things. And here's the indictment. And they do not think. They do not consider. And I could probably stop there and describe many Christians today. They do not think. They do not think in their heart that I still hold them accountable for their actions. An atheist is one who denies the existence of God and therefore rejects religion and rejects any faith and practice. And I believe what Hosea describes here is believers who walk in practical atheism. Oh, they believe in God. They believe that they ought to be religious. They ought to be doing these things. But they walk in their daily lives as if God did not exist. The prophets used them. The prophets spoke to them. But they rejected God. And they rejected faith. They disbelieved that God was omniscient. He says they forgot and they didn't remember that I remember all their sins. I know these things about you. They rejected his governance of them, his correction of them. They rejected his justice. As if God doesn't see. In spite of the fact that the scriptures tell us that he is El Roy, the God who sees. They treated him as if he didn't feel didn't feel their sin, didn't react to their sins in spite of the fact that the scriptures calls God, I am jealous. I have a righteous zeal for my name and my glory. They treated him as if he did not reckon with sin in spite of the fact that he calls himself Jehovah Mekedesh. I am the Lord who sanctifies. They think that he doesn't care, that, that it is light for him, that he winks at sin. 
They think that he, he is not the one who brings the early and the late rains. Even though they profess it with their mouth in verse 3, he will come, he will come certainly. But they don't walk that way. Even though he has said, I am Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. They think he is not interested in their lives, in, in the daily events. Even though he says to them, I am Jehovah Roy, the Lord your shepherd. We do that, do not. We say God is sovereign. He ordains everything that comes to pass. And wait until your car breaks down on the way to work. We say that God cares about everything I do. And then I go out and I make all these ways. I don't think he's given me enough money. So I need to find a way to get more money. I need to have that. My neighbor has it. I need to have it. We forget. We walk as if we are atheists. And is it any wonder that those around us have no clue that we are believers? We're no different than anybody else. We just, you know, we only go around once in life. Go for all the gusto, whatever it is. And God says, now their deeds are all around them. It's kind of a, a phrase. It's like, what is this? We, we tend to look at this and we say, no, 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 you're, you're forgetting that in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, God says of himself, or, or Habakkuk says in describing God, God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. God, God doesn't see these things because his eyes are too, that's not what it means. It means that God is too pure to countenance sin to approve of our sin, to give favor to our sin, our fickleness, our infidelity, and our deceit. God is not the author of sin, but God certainly sees our sin. God is not the patron of sin. God certainly hates sin when he sees it. And, and notice what he has said here. In verse 2, their deeds are all around them and they are before my face. It's capital M. My face. One man has written, guilt wraps its sin around them, it encircles them, and it stares God in the face. God sees our sin. We try to hide it. We try to whitewash it. We try to cover it up. We have these phrases in, in, in our day. What happens in my bedroom is between me and God. Yes, it is, and God sees. What happens in my car and by myself on my way to work, how I think and how, what I listen to, and yes, and God hears. The psalmist in Psalm 94, it, it, it doesn't have an author to it, but, but we, we ought to hear his voice. He, he says, pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, 
does he not hear? And he who formed the eye, does he not see? We, we walk as practical atheists. We, all, we walk as if we do not believe anything that God has given us in the scriptures and by the Holy Spirit. And it is a frightening thing. It is something that happens to us that catches us unawares. We, we, we are, I think, like Paul in, in Romans 7. He, he says, there was a time when I was alive. He says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came in, sin revived and I died. It's almost as if he said, when I would restore you, Paul, when I would heal you of this illness of your sin, of the fact that you are alienated from me and hopeless without God in this world, when I would, that's when you began to recognize your sin and your fickleness and your infidelity and your deceit. God does not take pleasure in our sin, no. But God and his business is to deal with our sin. No evil dwells in him, yet he sees it. And as David Hubbard says of this verse, sin spawns its own consequences. It's as if we have this dual Reality in Scripture, these dual facts. We sin and God sees it, but there is a reason. God knows that it will spawn. I like that word. Choices have consequences, yes, but sin spawns something. It creates something. Read James. It, it, it comes alive in us. And God is there to heal us and eradicate us. Has the word of Christ come and disturbed your conscience? Has, has the commandment come in and, and sin revived and, and you see it? Have you become more aware of it? Do not turn away from it. For it will encompass you. Hosea says. It will be all around you. It will be all over you, as a friend of mine used to say, like a bad smell. You will not see it, but it will encompass you. And it will change everything that you look at. It will change your outlook on life day by day. And it will be doing its work of rottenness and mold and infection in your life. And it may not appear now, but it will appear what does Scripture say? What does Moses say? Be sure. Your sins will find you out. But we ought to be, as we so eloquently heard about David. David, the king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the, the man after God's own heart. When he was confronted with his sin, when God came to deal with him and began to cut him open, even when the surgeon had to pronounce to him, you are the man. 
What did he do? Well, Psalm 51 tells us. He cried to the Lord, against thee, against thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he cries in his repentance, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Wash me, as the phrase has been rumbling in my mind ever since David preached it, multiply washings to me. In Psalm 4, the psalmist says, tremble and do not sin. Do not be, if I could say it this way, like the people of Israel and like the Ephraimites and like the Samaritans who deal falsely and who do not remember, who do not think. He says, tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. I'm not advocating introspection. I am advocating self-examination. Actually, I'm advocating going to the physician, asking him, cut me open, reveal to me that which is wicked within me. And that's exactly what the psalmist does in Psalm 39. He recognizes that there is that tendency not only to be fickle, not only to, to be unfaithful to God, not only to try to pull the wool over his eyes, but there is hidden sin. There is sin that God must deal with, and only God can do it because God says, I alone heal and give life. And so the psalmist in Psalm 139 and we would do well to emulate upon our knees his prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Our Father, these... Sins that confront us so blatantly in this passage, this, this earthy prophet who, who holds no punches, who spells out to us our wickedness, our evil, our infidelity. Father, we ask that you would, by his words and by your spirit, that you would open us, that you would search us, that you would do the surgery that is required. Father, we are not atheists. We do believe. Father, please keep us from walking as practical atheists in this world. You have formed us. You have separated us. You have set us apart, as the scripture says, for your glory, for your namesake. Oh, that your people would walk in that manner. Oh, that you would be pleased with us have your way with us that we might glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 2 Peter chapter 3. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.